I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And then I will read Psalm 19, 1 through 7. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth, and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Amen. Thank you, Paula. So we've been saying this Apostles' Creed for a long time, so I thought I better preach about it and talk about each phrase, and we're going to do that from now until the new year. And so this week I'm going to talk about that first phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I'm going to kind of do it again next week uh, to get uh, a little more in-depth about this first phrase. And then my brother is going to be visiting us um, on the 27th of September. He's going to talk about maker of heaven and earth, and he should do a good job on that because he lives real close to that ark in Kentucky and the Creation Museum, so he's, uh, he's all pumped up about that. He was talking to me yesterday about maker of heaven and earth, so looking forward to that. I don't know about uh, you, if you had an experience in kindergarten. You know, it's probably not that much different than my experience in kindergarten, which was in the basement of a Methodist church in Palatine, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, about 20 miles northwest of Chicago, less than 30 minutes from Wrigley Field. In fact, just a little aside, I guess last night, in the ninth inning, we were losing two to nothing. The Cubs got four runs. Huh? Is that good? I woke up to that this morning. I said, this is going to be a good day. The sovereign act of God. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, there was a lot of diversity in my kindergarten class. You know, being around Chicago and everything. I mean, there were smart kids. I won't tell you which one I was. A smart kid or a not-so-smart kid. Uh, Different ethnicities in my kindergarten class. Different sizes. Uh, uh, The kids who ate paste and the kids who didn't eat paste. You know, and everybody, no matter who they were, uh, we fought out in the playground. We fought, okay? But one thing brought us all together. That's where I learned the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. Not one nation under God, but one nation under God. 
indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That was a unifying exercise even in all of our diversity of our little kindergarten class. Now, does the church kind of resemble my kindergarten class? I mean, there's a great variety in the church. I mean, think about it. You got Eastern Orthodox, you got Catholics, you got Baptists and Pentecostals and Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians, some who eat paste and some who don't eat paste, right? Um, But that's just amazing, you know, that we got all these different people and, you know, every denomination has its strengths and its weaknesses as well as kind of a unique history. I know the Methodists have a unique history with John Wesley. Sometimes Christians get into fights, like kids out on the playground. But there's one thing, really, that has united Christians from every tradition, and that is the Apostles' Creed. Now, the earliest known mention of the Apostles' Creed was 390 A.D., but it had been developing during the lifetime of the Apostles. And a legend developed by the turn of the 5th century that attributed each clause of the Apostles' Creed to one of the disciples. Like, there's 12 clauses there. And they attributed each clause of the Apostles' Creed to one of Jesus' disciples. Supposedly, the 12 disciples were gathered there and preparing for their mission. And Peter, as usual, spoke out, you know, big mouth Peter. He said, well, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then Andrew chimed in and said, yes, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And so on, right down the line. Uh, that's a nice story, but that's not really how it happened. That's a legend. The Apostles' Creed developed in the early history of the church, of the Christianity, as Christianity kind of began to grow and spread beyond the bounds of Judaism. Hebrew converts, for the most part, they needed to be taught. They needed to be taught that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised so clearly in the Old Testament. But many Gentiles were coming to Christ too. Many Gentiles were coming to believe in Jesus too. And the church needed a way to explain its most important basic Doctrines, And so here we got the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed was purposefully created to bring people together. The creed was not meant really to be like a philosophical defense of the faith, but it was meant to be kind of a lean summary of what all Christians believe. This is helpful because, as you know, the Bible's a pretty big book. The Bible's a long book. And the creed takes this million-word Bible and boils it down to the basics. It's kind of like the cliff notes of the biblical story. And it is a story. It's a story about God. It's a story about God and his world. And it's complete with characters. And it has a plot. And it tells about the way God interacts and with, with his people, and it tells about the future, and the creed, be, the creed story begins with God's creation, and it ends with eternity. And the plot includes God actually becoming a man without ceasing to be God. And the crisis is Jesus' suffering and his death. And the resolution is in his resurrection and his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit to equip The church to live faithfully until the resurrection of the dead. It's a story. It's a great story. It's a true story. It's the greatest story ever told. When Christians affirm their faith by saying the Apostles' Creed, like we just did, we are effectively retelling the story. We're summarizing what we believe, but we're also telling one another a story 
that we already know, that we often forget. It's a story that bears repeating because there's no better story, and it gives us our bearings in life. It gives stability to our life, kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance in my kindergarten class. So when we confess, for example, you know, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that was the way it originally was, and it means universal. I believe in the Holy Universal Church. Or we say, I believe in the Holy Christian Church. And the communion of saints, we're reminded that Christianity is not just me and Jesus. Did you get that? It's not just me and Jesus. We are reminded that Jesus died to save a people for himself. And he saves us not just out of sin, but he saves us into this new community. He takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and he brings us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's called the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. It's not just me and Jesus. It is me and Jesus, but it's more than that. And this is not only a local community like we got here comprised of people that we know, but it is a global community. That transcends time. And despite their differences, Christians throughout the centuries and across the continents have agreed on the tenets of the Apostles' Creed. There's something, I think, beautiful. There's something extraordinary about knowing that when you and I confess the Apostles' Creed, there are people all over the world doing the same thing in different languages. You got Swedish Lutherans, you got Korean Presbyterians, you got African Pentecostals, you got Guatemalan Catholics, you got Chinese house churches, you got Egyptian cops, all can confirm this is what we believe. And today I just want to talk kind of an introduction uh, message because I'm going to keep going with this, this same clause next week. But I believe in God the Father Almighty. I want to talk about three aspects today of this phrase. So, the Apostles' Creed begins with that affirmation. I believe in God, the Father. I believe in God, the Father. Aspect number one. During my 40 plus years of pastoral ministry in the Midwest, I have met very few people who would deny that statement. You know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. The problem comes when we try to clarify what is meant by God. And it reminds me of a story about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, he was a a pastor uh, in Massachusetts in the 18th century. He played a critical uh, role in the first great evangelical awakening in our country. Read about Jonathan Edwards. When he was 13, he went to college. He went to Yale when he was 13 years old. He was brilliant. He wrote a book uh, with this big, long title. We had to read this in seminary. It was called... A faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton. That was the title of the little book, written in 1737. Anyway, Edwards was a pastor in Massachusetts in the 18th century, and after talking about the need for revival in his hometown, a questioning church member asked him, Surely everyone believes in God already. Yes. Edwards replied, but what kind of God do they believe in? When I show them the God of the Bible, they say, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in a God who is more to my liking. You know, times haven't changed because we kind of mold God into our image 
instead of wanting to be molded into him. We like a God of our own liking. We like a God of our own lifestyle, don't we? What about the God of the Bible? Today, many people still believe in God. But there are almost as many definitions of God as there are people who confess belief in him. The Bible tells us that God is actually knowable. We can know God. We can know him. And that he has a true and he has an objective character that does not change like the shifting shadows. He's our father. And what does that mean to us? First of all, I think it means that we believe that God is the father of all creation. Paul just read Psalm 19. Psalm 19 displays God as this ultimate author and sustainer of the world, sustainer of the cosmos, right? He is the one from whom all things come. He's the one who generates all things. Let me read Psalm 19, 1 to 4 again. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. You see, the created world sings of the maker. The voice rings out through all creation that God is real. God exists. God has made all things. He's glorious in his creativity and his might. Now, this is something that even the secular scientists are observing. For example, Australian astrophysicist Paul Davis writes this. The equations of physics have in them incredible simplicity elegance and beauty, that in itself is sufficient to prove to me that there must be a God who is responsible for these laws and responsible for the universe. And then Arno Penzias, he's the former head of Bell Labs, he states, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, The observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural event. Now these guys, they're not, you know, professing Christians, so far as we know. But they're sensing, really, the truth of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. All creation bears the mark of the Father who designed it. And that word David uses in verse 1 that we translate declare, it's a participle, a participle in the Hebrew original language. And the most literal transition would be something like this. The heavens are declaring. They are telling. They are showing their father's hand and his handiwork. Somebody just told me in the back that they went out in the middle of the night to take the dog out and they just couldn't believe the beauty of the stars and how close they were. They declare the glory of God. Verse two says that day to day, creation pours out speech. Creation pours out speech. In Hebrew, the verb means, it means to bubble up. Pours out means to bubble up. Day after day, information about God just bubbles up from the created universe. It reminds me of the three stooges. You ever watch those guys? Larry, Moe, and Curly. I love those guys. They seem to do a lot of plumbing on their episodes. And uh, in one episode, Curly twists a pipe and water began to shoot out everywhere and then he put his hand on it to plug up the leak only to have it shoot out from somewhere else. And then finally he put both hands on the two leaks, you know, only to have water shoot him right in the face. 
You know, it's funny, but I think this is the image, really, of Psalm 19. You know, knowledge about the existence of God is just streaming forth from creation. And when we try to plug it, it just bubbles up from somewhere else. And we can try to repress this knowledge, but ultimately it's futile. The world, the cosmos, sings of the glory of the maker. The Father is speaking to us constantly through his creation. The, theologian calls, the theologians call that you know, general revelation, but there's specific or special revelation in his own son Jesus. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. And he's revealed himself to us in his word. This is special revelation. But the general revelation, the creation, continually bears witness to the existence of God. Another aspect of this phrase, you know, I believe in, in God the Father Almighty. I just want to say God in three persons. To say I believe in God the Father means something even more than understanding God to be like the creator of the universe. It also points to the fact that God exists in three persons. When we call God Father, we're acknowledging the Trinity, believe it or not, kind of indirectly. We're, we're acknowledging his Trinitarian nature. Father affirms the Trinity. The Trinity is not a traditional doctrine invented by the councils of men. You know, say the Council of Nicaea in, in 325 or the Council of Constantinople in 381. It is a doctrine that is forced upon you by doing justice to the biblical text. One guy said, God the Father is Father not simply by virtue of his creation of us and the world, but he's He's eternally Father because of his eternal Son. And this point is made in John 5.18. The Jews are kind of responding in anger to Jesus because he's made some rather astounding claims about himself. And we read this in John 5.18, and I quote, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. Jesus referred to God as his father, which was downright shocking to his contemporaries. John 5, 18, we just read it. John said, or Jesus said, uh, that the son loves the father. John 14, 31. That he always does what pleases the father. John 8, 29. And when people look at him, they can know what the father is like. John 14, 9. So the father affirms the Trinity. And this father is our Father. The really good news is that it's not only Jesus who can call God Father, you are invited to call God Father as well. When the disciples came and said, Jesus teaches to pray, he didn't say, well, here's how to do it. Pray my Father who art in heaven. No, he said, pray our Father, our Father who art in heaven. Through Jesus, you can become a part of God's forever family. John 1.12 for to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's John 1.12. That's called adoption. You know, our church here at Calvary, uh, we've been blessed because I think we have borne witness to quite a few ad- adoptions here at Calvary. It's exciting. It's thrilling. Not only because Christians are living out their calling to care for the least and the lost, James 1.27 You know, true religion is to take care of widows and orphans. Uh, But also, because this is a a picture 
of God's adopting love for us. You may have heard Jesus, or that Jesus calls God Abba. You've heard that, right? Abba, it's kind of like us saying Daddy. And Jesus calls his father that several times in the Bible. One time is Mark uh, 14, 36, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, he said. But it's not just Jesus who can do that. The New Testament says that you can use this name for God as well. The Apostle Paul reminds Christians in Romans 8, 15 that we didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, for some of you, that's easy to imagine because you've had great fathers and men who have modeled God to you, God's compassion, God's tenderness to you. But for others, it's a little more difficult because your experience with your father has not been very good at all. Henry Light was one guy who didn't have a very good experience with his father. He was a pretty unfortunate little guy. He grew up and he became a songwriter, a hymn writer, and we still sing his hymns today. One of those hymns is called Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. But Henry had a terrible father, an awful father. His parents split up and sent him to boarding school. His father later remarried and from then on would not allow Henry to call him father anymore. In fact, he signed his letters, your uncle. I mean, that was his son. He signs his letters, your uncle. Wouldn't allow Henry to call him dad or father. This was terribly hurtful, as you can imagine, but the fatherhood of God became a source of comfort for Henry. And in his hymns, he addressed God as his loving, heavenly father. And he wrote words like this. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. The gospel, listen, the gospel was able to rewrite Henry Light's life story. Rather than being defined by this awful, terrible, horrible, earthly father, his life was determined by a wonderful, loving, eternal father. Notice one other thing. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, not I believe that God exists. I mean, it's something more than that. I mean, when you believe in something, you know, it's more than just intellectual ascent. It's more than just, you know, academics. It's more than just information. When you believe in something, it involves hope. When you, inv- when you believe in something, it involves trust. So do you believe that God exists or do you believe in God, the Father. I mean, do you trust him? Do you belong to him? Have you given your life to him? Have you received him? Have you welcomed him? You can do that. You can do that today. You can say, God, you know what? I am so sorry. You haven't been first in my life. You know, I've broken your law. I thank you, God, that you came. You came in the person of your own son and you died a death that I can't die. You lived a life I can't live and you are the son of God. And I just say, please come into my life. You can do that. You can commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you can believe in God, the Father Almighty. So aspect number one, I believe in God, the Father. Aspect number two, uh, God in three persons and then aspect number three, and I'm gonna go into great detail in this uh, hopefully next week but a little bit this week. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Got it? I believe in God the Father Almighty.
mighty. The creed confesses, I believe in God the Father Almighty. William Barclay, he's a Scottish theologian, a a Scottish uh, scholar, and he said uh, that the word almighty should dispel any tendency toward a sentimental, domesticated deity. The God Christians confess is God Almighty. You know, when Christians confess this clause of the creed, they are calling attention to the fact that God is Lord, that God is King, that God is sovereign, that God is omnipotent. He reigns over all the earth, but to call God Almighty does cause problems for some people. J.I. Packer, great theologian, he says, men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in Scripture, it's a matter of worship. Men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in Scripture, it's a matter of worship. We just sang about that, didn't we? Indescribable, you know, untamable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God. Think of the kid trying to stump his Sunday school teacher, asking, hey, if God, if God can do anything, can he make a, a rock so big he can't lift it? You've heard that one. Or, or can God make a square circle? The short answer to these questions is, of course not. When the creed says God is almighty, that means that God can do everything according to his own nature. The Bible is clear that God cannot lie and that God cannot cease to be God and God cannot add a fourth person to the Trinity. To call God almighty is to say that he can do everything that is consistent with who he is. God is sovereign. God is able to do everything he intends to do and what he intends to do is consistent with his nature. So where do we find that? Another verse that Paula read, you know, Psalm 19, verse seven. Listen, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You know, when the psalmist is talking about the law or the testimony or the precepts, he's not merely referring to the 10 commandments. He's talking in shorthand really about the whole uh, word of God. He's telling us that God's testimony is sure, and nothing he has promised will be withheld from his people, even when the fulfillment of his promises seem impossible to us. They are always possible for him. As a matter of fact, he seems to enjoy working in surprising ways. You know, Dr. Jack Deere came here a couple times, two or three times, maybe 10, 10, oh, 10 12 years ago, but he wrote those two books. I love those books. Surprised by the power of the Spirit surprised by the voice of God. And then Jonathan Edwards wrote his big long title that I already said, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton. Don't you want to be surprised by God? Don't you want to go around sometime with your mouth open just like in awe of what God has done and what he's doing right now and what he will do? God is amazing. In the Gospel of Luke, we learn about the angel Gabriel coming to visit Mary. He tells her that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. To which she replies, how will this be since I'm a virgin? That's a legitimate question. And Gabriel replies, nothing will be impossible with God. 
I mean, if you believe in God, the Father Almighty, then you must believe that his testimony is sure and that it's altogether righteous and true. And if that's true, it gives you incredible power to believe and to trust in God when trouble comes your way. And you can believe that God is mighty to pay the bills in your house, that he can rescue you from yourself and from your addicting habits and from all your struggles and you can believe that God can give you peace and joy even when the world around you doesn't look anything like the kingdom and doesn't seem to be getting better very quickly and you can believe that God is mighty to guide you as you go out and purposely and pursue his mission to love and to serve your neighbors even when the mission seems impossible to you and you can believe that God is mighty enough for you to put aside your obsession really with being safe and move move toward the pain of those in need most of all God is mighty to save we sing that song too God is mighty to save and he does so by keeping his promises in Jesus Christ all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God the Father is restoring all things and putting his might on display for all to see. And where does he reveal his might? More than anywhere else, he reveals it at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where the devil was defeated. He came to destroy the works of the devil and it was at the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God's promises fulfilled. The almighty God, the omnipotent ruler, the Lord of all, he comes, right, as a humble servant to save his people and to keep his promise. He allows himself to be crucified. Nobody took his life. He gave his life. It's part of the plan. He answers evil with good, persecution with service, hatred with love. His might is displayed in the love of the one who died even for those who sought his death. You might be in some tough situations right now. I don't know. Maybe you feel trapped. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe at work or in your family or in your job. But the cross, it just screams out to you. God's love and power are relentless. He will not stop until he redeems a people for himself. And he's not going to stop until evil is driven from creation. And every tear of the redeemed is wiped away. It's going to happen someday. Belief in a God like this, that revives the soul. It even gives us boldness to go out fearlessly, to be his representatives, to be his ambassadors in a, a world that desperately needs a savior I'll tell you what, the truth of God's almightiness is one of the most comforting truths that a believer can contemplate. It's the the ground or the basis, really, of all of our hopes. Think about this. This ascription in the creed of almighty to God, it's designed to stress God's all-ruling providence. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in the verse that we, we all know, Romans 8, 28, right? For he causes all things to work together for your good, to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. He rules the world. And for the sake of his children, we need to understand that we cannot rightly understand God at any point if we do not understand his sovereignty. Sovereignty is something that normally we argue about. And I tell you what, that is a shame because it is one of the most comforting doctrines in all of God's word. God's sovereignty is the ground of our hope and it's our comfort in a fallen world. You know, there was a lot of, uh, like, catechisms. We started confirmation 
today. And uh, some churches like Lutherans, they might have Luther's Catechism or Luther's Shorter Catechisms or the Presbyterians might do Westminster's uh, Confession and some of the Reformed people do Heidel, uh, he- the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? How does the Catechism answer that? It says, my only comfort in life and death is that I with body and soul am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that apart from the will of his Father in heaven, not a hair of my head can fall. Now that is sovereignty. That is almightiness. That's the sovereign providence of God so that not a hair of your head can fall apart from the will of the heavenly Father. That's comforting. That's comforting in a world in which we encounter evil all the time. We're gonna sing in just a minute uh, hymn number 144, and you don't have a hymnal, but that's the blessing of coming to the first service. You get to have a hymnal. You go take your hymnal, and you bring it all in, and you can open up the hymnal and read it right out of the hymnal. But this, you're gonna watch it on the screen, okay? You're gonna get the words on the screen. Anyway, this is a hymn that you've been singing probably since you've been five years old, maybe at vacation Bible schools. Some of you probably know it by heart. This is my Father's world. Look at the third stanza, because Maltby Babcock, he was a Presbyterian minister who wrote this hymn, he's singing of this very truth, of the comfort, really, of God's almightiness, the comfort of his sovereignty. When he says this in the third stanza, this is my father's world, oh let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world, why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. It comes right out of the Psalms, doesn't it? You see, it's the fact that God is sovereign that causes him to sing, even in spite of evil, because evil doesn't disprove God's sovereignty. Somebody said this, evil is the foil by which God displays his sovereignty. It doesn't call into question whether God is in control. It gives him the complete, concrete opportunity to display his dominion over all things for the sake of his people, and that's one of the most comforting things in the world. Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was a Holocaust survival. You know Corey Ten Boom's story probably. If not, Google it. Look it up in the internet. But you talk about somebody that experienced evil, that experienced injustice in her life. Listen to what Corey Ten Boom says. The wonderful thing about praying is that you leave a world of not being able to do something and enter into God's realm where everything is possible. He specializes in the impossible. Nothing is too great for his almighty power and nothing is too small for his love. Because God is almighty, we need fear nothing. And because God is almighty, even the pain that we experience in this life, he will conquer and use it to bring about his good purposes. The Father is sovereign. And because of that, we can believe in a God who is almighty and have peace in a fallen world. And so I want us to 
sing this hymn, This Is My Father's World, as the praise band comes up. And, and we want to declare uh, the sovereignty of God, that God is king, that God is Lord, that God is sovereign, that God is omnipotent, that, you know, though it seems that the wrong is winning the day, uh, God rules. And in the end, you know, everybody's going to stand before him. You know, Jesus, he stood before Pilate. Remember? In the end, Pilate's going to stand before him, and so is every one of us. And so that's why we need to get right with God. That's why we need his forgiveness. That's why we need his precious blood to cover us and to save us. Let's stand and declare, this is my Father's world. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Do you? I believe in God the Father Almighty. And we're going to continue that next week. But for a benediction, I want to read at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.